0: Hello and welcome to the second episode of the New Realities of Cybersecurity podcast. My name is Ian Todd. I'm a data privacy and cybersecurity consultant here at PwC. In today's episode, I'm joined by Charlie McMurdy to discuss the future of cybersecurity law. Charlie spent the better part of three decades at the Met Police, working from a detective to the head of law enforcement national cyber capability at the Police Central E-Crime Unit. Um, Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us, Charlie. Um, I I think this is, again, a really topical area and we're trying to cover off all the different areas of the cyber universe, I guess. And I think cyber crime is a really fitting area of that right now. and It's becoming more and more uh, prevalent. People are understanding it more and more. So I guess what we'd like to try and find out is a little bit about your background. I think it's quite a unique background before you came to PwC and a little bit about what you do now at PwC as well.
1: Okay, I'm glad I'm not covering the cyber universe. Um, So my background started in law enforcement, back in uh, life on Mars days, 1981, joined the Metropolitan Police, Um, spent 32 years within law enforcement, dealing with all sorts of different issues, um, primarily in specialist crime, dealing with murders, robberies, a bit of terrorist uh, covert policing, um, running covert units. Latterly I moved to take over um, the Scotland Yard fraud squad. Um, so back probably about ten years ago when I was managing the fraud unit and a few other sort of international engagement units and specialist crime departments, um, cyber wasn't Even really a word, Um, even you know, only as far back as 10 years. But working uh, in fraud and working with the banks, it was pretty obvious that technology was playing a substantial part in large scale crime. Right. Um, And the old fashioned way of dealing with fraud would be, you know, very slow and four year investigations and production orders follow the money trail gather the evidence whereas talking to the banks you know they were talking about well we lost 10 million you know yesterday morning and then the other bank would say oh we had that last week right um, and another bank would chip in and say yeah we're seeing the same sort of issues and fast time money movement using the internet to facilitate these big transactions So at that time, um, we had a limited uh, forensics team um, at Scotland Yard, mainly dealing with seized material, uh, dead box forensics, if you like. But we put together um, a bit of a a proof of concept operation with the banks, looking at how we could try and address common issues, common problems that the banks were facing, cyber crime attacks. So we uh, got the banks together to actually look at working in a fast-time, tactical, dynamic way with law enforcement. Initial proof-of-concept operations, common issues, common problems, attacking the banks or using banks' infrastructure to facilitate cybercrime, money movement primarily, um, clearly showed there was an opportunity to do more in the cyber, the high-tech crime space. Right. So we started to take on a few cases, um, proof of concept, showing that we could actually condense um, an old-fashioned style of investigation from you know, six months, eight months, um, slow-time investigation. If we actually changed our way of working to throw everything at that investigation and use the technology opportunities, we could condense that investigation into, you know, six weeks or eight weeks. Right, okay. Yeah. So mitigating harm. Um, but that meant actually using the skill set that existed primarily within the financial sector, with our law enforcement investigators. Um, and that led to those proof of concept showing a, a substantial return on investment, cutting the time span that that criminality was taking place over, um, and then, um, this is a very condensed version, but a lot of lobbying, a lot yeah. of evidence, trying to actually paint a pr- picture of how much um, technology was actually playing in committing crime, Right. There was no intelligence picture at the time. Um, cyber crime wasn't being reported because right. of reputational issues. Yep. Uh, if it was reported, law enforcement didn't actually capture it particularly well. It was normally captured as a fraud or mm. you know, old-fashioned terminology. Um, so there was no threat assessment. There was no picture of how much was happening. <clears throat> but we managed to um, put the evidence together to secure 30 million um, treasury funding out of the spending review. Right, That money was used um, to build a central operational team um, housed at Scotland Yard, the Police Central E-Crime Unit, that would deal with national impact, national harm type cyber crimes. Mm. Um, but as well as building the central capability, you know, only a relatively small number of police officers involved in that operational team, but the realization was there that, you know, there were several thousand, tens of thousands of police officers around the country that ultimately need to, needed to increase their knowledge and understanding so that if somebody in, you know, the Midlands or the Southwest goes into a police station, Um, and says that they've been a victim of cybercrime, you know, denial of service or uh, ransomware or whatever the crime may have been involving technology, those police officers needed to have an understanding and a certain, you know, different levels of capability. So in a nutshell, it was really about building a central operational capability housed at Scotland Yard, upskilling and embedding that cyber awareness into all law enforcement training
0: um is all across the uk this goes
1: the training roadmap, right um, and putting together some regional um hubs yeah. that came later on realizing that you know by having building a central body of law enforcement capability the strength and the power of that unit wasn't just in the cops that sat in the unit it was in the relationships that they could form and capitalise with their industry partners. So working with the banks or working with aerospace mm. or working with academia, the universities yeah. that could come on board and work with them. Um, and very early on, you know, my cyber crime team formed really good relationships, not just with other law enforcement bodies um, around the world, Interpol, Europol. um, Every investigation involved some international connotation to it, either with victims outside of the UK, suspects outside of the UK, or infrastructure outside Mm. of the UK. Um, So we formed these relationships with, as I say, primarily industry, academia, um, other law enforcement bodies, but a big, a big success factor, um, certainly early on, was to get the, the banks working with law enforcement. In this time, critical yeah. data sharing, um, but tactical partnership. And we set up a virtual financial task force. Right. So when we saw a common issue, common problem, um cybercrime occurring that was affecting loads of different banks and quite often I say affecting the banks, quite often it would be data stolen, um financial credentials elsewhere yeah. and being utilized, you know, muling the money passing that financial um, transaction through UK banks. Right, I see. Um, So lots of operations. um, Still early days, a lot of cybercrime was going unreported. Right. Um, Perhaps a a bonus. um, Some may see it. In other ways, but uh, it was at the time of the um, the WikiLeaks and Julian Assange yeah. and a lot of hacktivist attacks taking place with the likes of Anonymous, yeah. um, and certainly some of those attacks knocking over you know global payment systems um, and big companies that they they took um, took offence to and turned their attentions to and attacked them. Um, certainly raise the profile of cyber in the media yeah, and so raise yeah. the awareness of the need for capability um, within law enforcement. Yeah. But I think it, it was also a bit of a wake-up call um, to business and industry that you know, they were susceptible the internet could be used to cause substantial harm yeah. relatively easily. And
0: that's, that's I mean, I, the, the flavour I got from from what you said there was it started around financial institutions I guess in the financial sector and then once you started to focus on that and provide solutions to the problems they have you quite quickly see it branching out everywhere else and it affects national infrastructure or the retail sector and like you say the the complexity of all this is someone may steal something through a retail store and then use that as a fraudulent transaction to go through the banks and so it becomes a very big web of deceit I guess.
1: Definitely, um, and you know the web just keeps expanding um, throughout the investigation, so as you say, data can be stolen in one sector um, or new quite often it will be data stolen in numerous different sectors, yeah. um, data stolen through numerous different tactics used by the cyber criminals, you know either the old-fashioned you know the usual sort of data breach um, just you know, ram-raid, if you like, into a company and steal that data, or putting up um, hacked websites to entice people to provide their data, the old-fashioned deceptions, but online.
0: Yeah, Um, I think that's what's really funny. I think people think about these really sophisticated technology um, methods, but in actuality, it's just a replication of what's happened historically through crime, I guess, isn't it? It's the same idea, it's just a different application.
1: That's right. It's using technology, which... No, it is the old-fashioned type of crime. And most of the people arrested and prosecuted were charged with old-fashioned offences, certainly right. only early on, rather than Computer Mute Misuse Act offences. Right. Um, the problem is with technology, as we know, it, it speeds up um, that. Interaction. You can interact with instead of face to face one person, you can interact with thousands or tens of thousands yeah. at any one time. So the old-fashioned fraudster that would have to, you know, physically be in one location and deceive one individual, is now happening at a click of a button or yeah. you know across the internet. It's affecting thousands, um, and the money can be moved so fast out of our jurisdiction and the cyber criminals know you know where the the opportunities are within um, law enforcement where the hard to reach places are so they exploit that as well
0: yeah so i mean i guess it's a really really good foundation for this uh, how how do you feel organizations today are prepared for this do you think I, I mean are you seeing a really robust industry out there or is there still big vulnerabilities and weaknesses
1: Unfortunately, it's the latter. I think there's right. still lots of vulnerabilities and weaknesses. I mean, we see these attacks day in, day out um, in the media. Uh, the volume of data, the big data that companies are now holding um, that can be compromised, um, quite often relatively easy, um, presents substantial opportunities for cyber criminals. I think you know, th- th- the light bulb has gone on with a lot of companies. Um, they understand that you know cyber is happening. Um, there's still, to a large degree, that sort of you know well it's happening to somebody else. It hasn't happened to me yet. I think big companies are obviously gearing up because of regulations changing, um, liability issues that we're now seeing come into play the reputational harm that can be caused by a lot of these breaches that take place. Um, I think the same perhaps isn't as true with the smaller companies that haven't got the resources, that haven't got that awareness um, as to where their vulnerabilities exist and what they could and should be doing about them. Um, But certainly we're now seeing sort of um, a, a force of companies, Um, almost running to uplift their cyber defences so they're appropriate to the threats that they are now facing.
0: Yeah, I I think some of the things I've seen um, within this industry, which is still quite worrying as well, is that people are kind of securing the perimeters and they're building big walls, but if somebody manages to get over that wall, they've got no idea where they are once they get inside. And that's another problem, I guess, from a crime perspective, if you know a breach has happened, as a law enforcement, you're going to say, well, what's what happened? And how, how bad's the damage? And where are the criminals now? And I'm not sure how many organisations right now can actually answer those questions. I mean, is that something you've seen as well?
1: Yeah, and that, that has a real um, impact on that company's reputation when, when that breach does then go public. And they don't know when it happened, how it happened, what harm has potentially been caused. Yeah. You know, it's that post-breach Response that can be almost as damaging as the breach itself. And the thing that, you know, when we speak to a lot of companies um, and when you look at, you know, historic breaches, and I'm talking historic going back two years, but also in the last few weeks, a lot of the breaches now, cyber criminals, you know, they are far more sophisticated. When you look at who's responsible for the attacks, the crime that's taking place, they're not the old fashioned ram raiders. They will have teams dedicated to researching that company, to look at you know, staff profiles online, to do their open source research. They will send teams out to physically recce the premises. Mm. Um, one of the last cases that I was involved in um, before leaving law enforcement was. Um, committed by an individual who established teams working to him and they were tasked with specific aspects of that cybercrime business, such as researching online, who the suppliers were, um, you know, what the staff passes might look like, so that he could actually, um, in this particular case, social engineer individuals into branches of our UK banks.
0: And by social engineering, you mean manipulating the people around them so that he can or she can get what they want, the yeah. desired Yeah, walk,
1: walk and talk your way into that branch. Yeah. Um, you are a cyber criminal, but you're going in, you know the right name of the person to ask for, you know that they're not in the branch on that particular day because you've seen they've posted they're off on holiday in the Bahamas somewhere. Um, you know that you know their one of their utility suppliers might be whoever. So you look the part, you act the part, you talk the part. You can talk your way into some of these organisations. So that's bringing the physical aspect yeah. in to the attack, um, and it ties in with a lot of our findings about you know insider the part that insiders play in cybercrime now um, in quite a unique way. But then once you've managed to work your way into that organisation, then you can exploit the technology. And in that particular case, it was deploying um, keyboard monitors onto the back of the banking terminals, then capturing all the data for all the transactions that were taking place. So you've then got all that nice um, financial identities that you can then you know, data, step change the data, And obtain your own, you know, the credit cards um, when you can then go and spend on those cards or do the money transactions. But the insider aspect um, comes up time and time again as a particular vulnerability Mm. that cyber criminals exploit. Um, and by insider, you know, we see all, all sorts of parts and roles that insiders play, either through lack of awareness and training, the, the yeah. old, you know, typical phishing email that somebody doesn't appreciate and you know, they click on the link and that causes a vulnerability and exploit into the organisation, um, or they're posting something inappropriate completely unawares that that is useful um, to cyber criminals who are watching, monitoring, who've perhaps befriended them on LinkedIn or Facebook, yeah. um, or just you know insiders um, not following guidance policy or applying appropriate security measures that yeah. should have been applied, um, all the way up to insiders specifically gaining employment with fake legends, fake CVs, um, purely to gain access to that company um, to facilitate passing data back to the criminal gang that's behind them.
0: And that's always a worry, isn't it? I think when I talk to clients, they say, oh, we do a great background screening. We do all these different things. We know, we know the people we've got in here are really nice, good people, but that doesn't mean that they won't slip up themselves at some point. In the, I mean, the simplest security thing is someone tailgating through the front door. They use their pass, they hold the door, oh, let's be polite, I'll open the door for you, and you've let some random person into the building. So like you that the insider threat can be a really non-malicious thing, but it can be hugely, hugely detrimental to the, the organisation's security. Yeah.
1: I, th- I think you know, one of the, the changes that we are starting to see now is traditionally cyber has been, um, and cyber security has been in that sort of silo that it's the IT guys that are responsible for the cyber security of that organisation. Now, as you say, there is that realisation that you need to bring together the cyber, the technology side, the information side, the physical side, because that's what the cyber criminals will look at, and they will look at all those different aspects, how they can actually utilise those different vulnerabilities to gain access into the organisation. These attacks are far more sophisticated mm. than you know just crashing into the organisation. Yeah. They will use all the different opportunities. Um, coming in through the supply chain is one that we talk about yeah. you know, more often than not. And we see that time and time again. And that supply chain could be to compromise you know, one of your suppliers or one of your contractors who's coming onto the network for a short period of time. Um, but it's a softer touch rather than trying to get through the fortress walls of, of the organisation that you're targeting. targeting. I'm, I'm, sure,
0: I'm sure somebody you'll... Will- Correct me for this, but Target, I believe, were when when their big breach occurred, happened through their supply chain. I believe it was the air duct engineers somewhere through that supply chain. It's a very public case, and that was the weak link in their chain, and they exploited that, and that's how the the huge breach occurred. So, like I say, it it, it might not be the obvious area, but somewhere there'll be a, a little break in the chain, and someone will exploit that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and that that isn't unusual. Um, you know, knowing we we always say to companies, you know, where does your network start and finish, all the endpoints, who's on the network, making sure that if somebody comes in for a period of time, that it is the appropriate and the security measures, and that person follows the security policies and procedures. But when that piece of work has finished, making sure that they no longer have access to the
0: network. Um- so in terms of pwc what what are we doing as an organization so what 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 was your role now and and how are we tying all this together
1: so i think we're still doing um an awful lot of awareness raising around the nature of the threat how these exploits occur um different departments More so now, um, we've done lots of work with, you know, board level and C-suite members of organisations, but also, you know, last week I was talking to HR, um, heads of HR teams that, you know, perhaps present a real opportunity for cyber criminals, people in HR, we say, you know, all the security advice about don't click on that link, but HR, everything comes into them yeah. with CVs attached on that link. Yeah. Um, and how do you actually assess who's trained to know whether that individual is legitimate and that, you know, emailed passport is legitimate, etc. Mm-hmm. So PwC, we're doing an awful lot still around awareness, raising um, within our clients um, and companies, we're doing an awful lot once that awareness has been raised to support companies in identifying where they could improve their cyber security defences and that's around you know not just the IT aspect and shoring up the firewalls, it's around the people, it's around the policies, mm. it's around implementing security measures um, perhaps the wrong thing to say, but an awful lot of the cyber crime and the exploits that we see happen could be prevented with just better um, housekeeping, if you yeah. like, being put in place. Yeah. Um, you know, Making sure that you haven't got you know, vulnerabilities on the network, understanding where your network starts and finishes, looking at Um, Your supply chain, looking at training and awareness and making sure you haven't got loads of historic data still lying around. If you're sharing data externally, how do you actually manage the security of that data that goes out of your infrastructure, your organisation? Um, Obviously, loads of work going on around um, data protection regulations coming in, um, making companies aware of what they need to be doing. Yeah. Um, the other part that um, we, we actually provide is with our breach aid services so when unfortunately breaches do occur um, it's scrambling all the requisite capability to support clients um, particularly in those critical first few days yeah. and that's not just the IT team going in to to assist, to identify when and how that breach occurred and what has been taken. But it's also working with clients as to what they should do to try and mitigate the harm, their engagement with the Information Commissioner's Office, um, and I'm I'm normally called in when it comes to, well, do we need to report this to law enforcement? What will law enforcement do if we report it to them? How could law enforcement potentially assist in this breach? Um, And unfortunately for clients, the law enforcement picture is still quite a confusing one with the National Crime Agency and local policing. Um, in the metropolitan area uh, within London, we have Falcon, which encompasses the cyber capability for victims in London. Then you've got regional cyber crime teams, and you know potentially calling on um, the high-end capability within GCHQ. So you know when a major breach occurs, all these different parts. Um, need to be aligned and companies need to know how they can engage appropriately. Who do they report to yeah. in the first instance? Um, and if it is a substantial breach, then you know UK reporting, most cybercrime reports, we push or try and encourage victims to report to action fraud. Right. Um, but, you know, if you've had a major breach, such as, you know, the target breach that you mentioned, or any of the high profile breaches that we've seen recently, companies don't want to go online and fill in that form. They want to speak to somebody, they want to, you know, have somebody on board who can actually get involved with them and support them um, in that investigation.
0: Yeah, I, I think I'm biased, but I think Aid is such a valuable option for clients. I think like I said earlier, people try and build the big walls, but people can still jump over them. And once it happens, we know, we, we, I think we all, if we we're honest with ourselves, know that it's very difficult in the first 72 hours to know exactly what's went wrong, how much has went wrong, and what to do.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you've you've mentioned sort of some of the people involved in Breach Aid, but a lot of the advice might be outside of that specific sort of skill set area. It might be primarily, you know, what should their voice to the market, to their clients be, um, as well as all the the tactical, you know, engagement with the information commissioner's office, et cetera, et cetera. But it is that that critical moment, how they deal with that breach that can play such a a substantial part in how it 's perceived by the customers yeah. how it 's perceived by the information commissioner 's office, um, and you know cybercrime still has that stigma about it that well you you 've had a breach, why did you have that breach yeah. and you know we 're seeing a, a bit of a change now with Um, I heard a a chief exec I was talking to and somebody said you know what keeps you awake at night is it the fact you're going to have a breach Um, and I thought his answer was particularly good with well no it's not if I'm going to have a breach because we will all potentially have a breach at some stage what keeps me awake at night is how we will be responding to that breach to get back to business as usual as fast as possible and how we will actually deal with that breach appropriately. So I think you know, hopefully the stigma of having a cyber crime will you know, continue to, to lower, um, but companies' readiness and ability to respond to the breach when it occurs um, will actually continue to improve.
0: Yeah. Well, Charlie, it's, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. I think there's going to be hundreds of questions, so hopefully we can get you back on for a, for a second take sometime as well. But I do appreciate your time today. Pleasure. So thank you for joining us today. Next week, I'll be joined by Chris McConkey to discuss digital crime scene forensics. Chris leads one of the most fascinating areas of PwC, where his team look through digital crime scenes after an organisation has been compromised to understand what happened, how to fix it, and how to stop organisations being breached again in the future. In the meantime, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me directly on Twitter at iantodd86 or email me at ian.todd@pwc.com. at pwc.com. Please remember to subscribe for all future episodes.